Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. We love you all so much and are so glad you've come to listen and learn with us again. So today we're talking to three badass Indigenous women in the art and museum world. And we wanted to have this conversation to build off of our artist conversations from the last two episodes. We got the artist perspective from our amazing guests in the last few episodes, but there's another important piece to the art world where historically a lot of gatekeeping, but also a lot of amazing things have happened. And that is museums. So I'm someone who studied Indigenous contemporary art as an undergrad, and I spent my campus job and summers interning in museums and trying to learn how to transform curatorial practices and museum spaces to be more welcoming and representative of Native cultures. And I'm definitely someone who still loves curating, and I've curated two small exhibits at Brown, and I think there's like a ton of potential to create needed dialogue and educate through museum spaces. But I also realize that we have a long way to go in a lot of ways. Today, we have three different perspectives of the museum world. We have Miss Jamie Powell, who's Osage and the first Indigenous curator at the Hood Museum at Dartmouth. Kristen Dorsey, a Chickasaw fine arts jeweler and metal worker artist who is transitioning her career to become a curator. I don't know if that's public yet. (laughs) And we also have Jacqueline Russell, a citizen of the Navajo Nation, who recently transitioned away from the herd and is getting to an entirely new work and arts practice that we're excited to hear about today. So I just want to say welcome, relatives, sisters. Thank you so much for being here. It feels like a real honor to get to spend time with you. And even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, <laughs> this virtual space feels uplifting to me. And so thank you for being here, Tiguitzid. And I love you and appreciate you. And thank you for taking the time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we wanted to just start off by hearing from each of you, like, why were you or are you interested in the type of work that you do in museum and cultural spaces? And then what do you see as the challenges from your position where you are in your career, um, the challenges of these museum spaces? And in that sense, too, like, we also, since our our podcast is called All My Relations, um, kind of thinking about the ways that museums and curation fit into this idea of being in good relation. So that's like a multi-parter. But basically, why are you interested in this work? Uh, What do you see as the challenges? (laughs) And then like any sort of thoughts around these ideas of museums and curation fitting into the idea of being in good relation? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'll go first. So, um, I, this is Jamie, and I grew up with um, my father being in the Navy. Um, and so my mom is Osage, um, my dad's non-Native, um, and he was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot, but spent summers at home in Oklahoma, participating in our Inlanchka, um and being you know with family and relatives there. Um, but uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, we lived north of Chicago, and Chicago has some incredible museums. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I would go to museums on the weekend with my families, or we would go for um, field trips. And 
I loved museums. Um, the Museum of Science and Industry was a place that really sparked my interest and curiosity. Um, I loved the Field Museum where you could go and like go into a pyramid and, you know, be Indiana Jones, um, which is problematic in a lot of ways too. <laughs> but, um, you know, and so in, I think it was fourth grade was like the one year where um, learning about Native Americans was part of the, you know, Illinois state curriculum. And so we went to the Field Museum to the Native American Cultures Hall. And I was really excited because I had told my friends that I was Native American and they were like, no, you're not. You don't live in a teepee. Um, you know, you don't look like a, you know, Pocahontas or like have a pet like a friend raccoon. And so we go to the museum and um, they have a case about Osage uh, people and it's like Osage men's costumes. And there's like no representation of women. Um, and the clothes that are on view are not the kinds of clothes that um, my com- that we wear um, today, um, even on, you know, our dances. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it was just like a really sad experience. And then my friends um, or these kids in my class told me like, well, it's because you're not a real Indian anyway. And we oh. didn't believe you. And it was just like this really kind of like damaging experience for me. And so a lot of the reason, you know, the reason I got into museums is because I want kids to go into museums and feel like they're um, represented in meaningful and respectful ways um, and to like experience the kind of joy and curiosity um, you know that that you can happen in museums and that should happen in museums and not mm. those kind of negative feelings um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of work to be done things are getting better um, mm-hmm. you know but there's still like a lot of a lot of space for for growth mm. I had the same experience at the Field Museum, but that was like three or four years ago when I was asked to do a show there and I walked in and there's those totem poles that are in the in the center house and, um, you know, they're like still unnamed poles. You know, like some Haida artist did it or some Simshian artist and then I went and, you know, walked into the native area and they had um, these what we call squidilish. We run squidilish for ceremony. They're these paddle boards. And we don't really talk about it. It's not even something I would publicly talk about here and say, this is why we do it and what it's for, because it's super sacred and it's quiet. You know, it's something we do um, quietly. And those, when you run squidilish, those boards are taken, they're putting back inside their box and they're putting put away uh, for, uh, for good reason. And then those were just sitting there at the front of the exhibit. And I was like, Oh no, I cannot go. I cannot walk in here. <laughs> you know, like I literally turned around and walked in the other direction. And the person giving me a tour was like, what, where are you going? I said, this is, I can't go in here. This isn't appropriate. But you know, that was a couple of years ago. So I can completely relate to that, Jamie. Yeah. Well, and I will say about the field museum, they, you know, um, have uh, taken down the old, um, Native American Cultures Hall, not the Northwest Coast, but the Native American, um, you know, the other part of the hall and have been working with, a, you know, a collaborative team and a um, Native um, or an Indigenous advisory group um, to reinstall that. And so, you know, there is, um, 
you know, some conversation happening there and some, um, there's a great show there curated by uh, Nina Sanders, um, Opsalaga Women and Warriors, um, that Nina Sanders did, supported by um, Miranda Roberts, who's a curatorial fellow there. And so, you know, they're, um, I don't want to just like bash the Field Museum, even though it's like super easy to do. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I actually really want to see that show. It looks really cool. <laughs> yeah, my heart goes out to Nina and the team because it opened just like literally a week before everybody needed to be at home and shelter in place. Right. Um, so, um, but it's such a feat in terms of just that that monumental of an exhibit with contemporary indigenous artists is there at a a real like world renowned institution. Um, so big props to Nina and the team. So I can um, go ahead and jump in. So yat Jacqueline Russell and she had touching initially can any bushes chain to the coach that should say to a belagane that Chanela look at you get those and a Canadian Asha. I am connecting in from the Maya Bikaya, the lands of the um, Maya people in Santa Ana Pueblo. It's my partner's home in uh, north central New Mexico, and it's where uh, we raise our son and our family. And so I, um, I think listening to Jamie's story, um, going back to where I found the magic and the interest in museums, um, I was a young kid um, in the interactive galleries of the Heard Museum and waiting for my dad to finish up some uh, consulting that he was doing as a photographer um, with the museum. And so I would just wait and play at all different museums all over the Southwest and all over the country as he would have these meetings. And so um, it was always a really exciting place um, to be, um, to explore. Um, I, when I filled out my application for college, I knew that I liked art history. I knew that I like art. And I knew that I like history. And so I just put the two together. I didn't know that art history was a thing. I grew up in like <laughs> rural res, Kayenta. Um, shout out to all the, you know, MV Mustangs. And, um, and my application came back with my major having been declared art history. And I was like, wow, it didn't get returned. I guess it's a thing. Um, in college, I love sitting in the dark room, like watching slides drop, like on the old like slide Kodak carousels and just being like so taken by seeing the world through um, like through like the art of other cultures. And <clears throat> so I really loved art history and went into it because like my grandparents had actually helped build the new Navajo Nation Museum and Library and Archives on my res. And so I grew up in a family that always like prided itself on the power of culture and like understanding and like that there was value in like being proud of who we are as native people, as a Diné person. And to me, there seemed to be like such a direct correlation to like that and like museums. And so of all the things I wanted to do from like museum, like magazine editor to like museum director to like astronomer which I don't know who wants to be astronomer like that's all like math and like digits and I realized it wasn't <laughs> looking at the stars um but I realized that like the museums were like this really interesting place and then I like begged for an internship at the Heard Museum and got it and it was like unpaid I don't recommend this um uh but then it led to a paid position um and um that 
just in itself, like, was the way that, like, I was able to, like, grow with the help of um, another Dana woman who was really, like, a mentor um, to me in those early days um, because she really, like, created a pathway um, for me and, like, other, I think, like, Indigenous people who began to, like, come into this space. And, um, and so I really felt there was such this like beauty in museums of being able to work at an institution that in a lot of ways did things right in working with communities. Um, definitely had room to improve as I like learned over the course of my career there. Um, but it was really, I think the thing that attracted to attracted me to museums was the way that there was such an opportunity for learning because of this proximity and like avail like proximity of like privilege of people coming in with like mm. no recollection like or even not even recollection but also just not understanding indigenous people at all and i felt like that was such an interesting place to be um i like being a translator um between institution and like my culture and people not a spokesperson but a translator um mm -hmm. and i really found that place to be really interesting um and over the course of my time in museums working on the inside also found them to be very problematic filled with institutional racism um a lot of just white supremacy culture that was at work and I transitioned out of museums to consult um, really because of that, because I was so burnt out. And so I think we also have to acknowledge how, yes, beautiful museums are, but how harmful they can be and taxing to indigenous black and POC um, community members. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I can go. Chokma, chin chokma, sa holchifoat. Uh, Kristen Dorsey, Anchoka Chafa Hochifo Konihoma, Anchafa Chikasha Yagni, Chikasha Saya, Chita Famichi Hutiku Chokmashki. My name is Kristen Dorsey. Um, I'm from the Red Skunk Clan of the Chickasaw Nation, and I'm so happy to be with all of you today. And um, my I've always been, oh, and I'm speaking to you from Tongva land, um, where I grew up uh, away, away from my tribal community in South Central Oklahoma. And I, um, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to intern with my tribe's cultural center before the building was actually constructed and they were in the beginning planning phase of the exhibits and um, everything about the cultural center. And so I got to spend a whole summer working with different um, staff who were involved in all sorts of amazing cultural revitalization programs. Um, I, it was a way for me to really connect with the work that my tribe was doing around our language and our arts and our scholarship. Um, and I met some really inspiring people. And so I think that really set me up to go on my way into the cultural center uh, museum world space. And I've always been an artist my whole life um, since I was a small child. I would sit and draw for hours and I've always been very visual. I've always loved going to museums and staring at a piece for 
um, very, very long. My family would always leave me behind in the different rooms. And um, so I, I've just loved um, studying other art uh, my entire life. And I think when you're so visual, you kind of create um, a visual memory for people's bodies of work and you learn to um, hone your own aesthetic as well. And so I went to school, um, I did a dual degree program with Tufts University and the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. And I was actually in um, the same area Adrian was <laughs> around the same time before we knew each other. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> in my research, um, I, I did native studies through American studies. And for my thesis, I actually built a business plan for a jewelry company, but then also was researching um, our Mississippian techniques in metal smithing because uh, we have copper working um, that goes way back to our ancestors. And so I was, I would always visit the Peabody Museum at Harvard and mm. go into um, their collections and look at their books for my research. And um, I was also taking a lot of courses um, from my professor and still mentor. Um, she's like family, Joan Lester. And um, so she was mm-hmm. teaching us to think critically about what the exhibits were saying and what they were actually teaching. And I remember one day I was at the Peabody and I was standing behind a mother and a small boy, and there were all of these mannequins of native people, and um, and they're like very stiff, very creepy looking mannequins. <laughs> and I remember the little boy asked his mom, "Mom, are all the Indians dead?" And I was standing right behind them, and I think that um, was kind of an aha moment for me it really drove home the importance of changing that um like what Mm -hmm. you all have spoken about already um i think seeing my cultural center take shape in oklahoma versus seeing the really antiquated exhibit about native people at the harvard peabody um and contrasting those at that time Uh, really informed the direction that I'm going. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up a really important point. I had a similar experience. um, And a lot of this is because it's like the natural history museums where um, there are exhibits about um, indigenous peoples and, you know, other and brown people. It's like brown people and animals Mm -hmm. um, next to each other. Rocks are, you know, what we have in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I worked at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science um, and they had this really uh, interesting exhibit case about taxidermying animals. And Mm. a kid and his grandfather had clearly seen that and then went into the Native American Cultures Hall, and um, I heard this little kid ask his grandfather, Grandpa, you know how those other animals were, like, stuffed dead animals? Are these stuffed dead Indians when he saw the mannequins? And, you know, and so I think that's, you know, 
like you get to this really interesting point and it's why a lot of us I think have this interest in contemporary art and the work that contemporary artists are doing because we really have to like counter those um, you know problematic representations of indigenous peoples only existing in the past only existing um, you know as these historic beings um, who are like less than human and mm. so you know the um, the history is important too and I think those of us who work within these spaces are trying to figure out ways to talk about that history but like people aren't ready for that yet they still need like the primer that like hey we're still here um you know and so i think that's one of the one of the big challenges Mm -hmm. you actually helped us segue beautifully jamie and (laughs) which into our next question you know and and that's thinking about how the narrative shifts when uh, the curator is a native person versus a non-native person or an indigenous person versus a non-indigenous person and how the power structure changes. Uh, For me, you know, like um, I have the final show of Project 562 coming out at the Seattle Art Museum next year, and I am going to be the curator for the exhibition, which is uh, like this massive shift that was required for because they don't have a native curator on staff or in, any native people in that sort of position. And I just said, like, I can't, I cannot, I cannot do that. <laughs> so they, so they said, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll let you curate the show. But that being said, you know, I have, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked to uh, do a show with Edward S. Curtis. You know, and I, in fact, I did a show like that 15 years ago at the Seattle Art Museum where they said, hey, we really want to take we want to we have this huge collection of Curtis images. We want to put up your work next to his so that you can be in dialogue with it with his work. And and I won't name all the other institutions that have asked me to do that, that I've had to politely decline. But I um, I find that it's very um, it's not often or it's very difficult for me to find entry into these spaces without it, without it being like shown through the lens of a non-native person. Um, Especially when we think about the board, you know, it's like, it's one thing if there's a native curator and, but there's the, but the board is usually not, (laughs) there's usually not native people on the board too. So that also makes this kind of a difficult um, experience for me as an artist and and I wonder how you navigate that and think about that in in from your perspective <laughs> um, I have some thoughts <laughs> <laughs> easy question no big deal <laughs> How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) I think think that like to the first half of the, the, the question, um, when I was at the herd over the course of 11 years, there is two exhibitions that came from a tribal community museum and, or was, um, created by a community itself. So we're talking about over, I don't know, 80, I don't know, 60 exhibitions over 11 years, over a decade. Um, And two of them came from the perspective of indigenous people. Um, One in particular was actually from the Pueblo of Isleta and the power shift of doing, so my role as director of museum and of educate, director of education and public programs was 
like thousands of things. Every <laughs> every museum educator <laughs> listening to this knows that they're the the part of your job description that says other duties that may be required <laughs> is like huge. It's long. Um, but one of the things that I was in charge of was doing like walkthroughs of different, so training docents, so mostly training about 98% of the docent core um, is non-Indigenous people to talk in a way about Native people that was promoting at least a, a contemporary, respectful, um, culturally aware view of, of Native people. Um, and for the most part, like that was something that was well embraced. And I remember the walkthrough of the Pueblo of Isleta show um, and just being so inspired by the shift and the buzz of docents in that moment of the labels saying we, we and I, we and I believe in this and not they, not they did this, they did that, they believe in this, these people did that. And like that, you can't, you can't bottle up the power in like being able to speak for yourself. Um, mm. And it, it, the other exhibit was a Diné photography exhibit that came from the Navajo Nation Museum that was uh, a, a kind of a survey of contemporary youth, um, mostly youth photographers. And it was the same thing of like, this is my grandmother. This is like labels being incorporated in their own language. And so there's, I think, there's so much power and it's really difficult to underscore like how much of a difference that makes in the consciousness of people who are the visitors who are taking in the material, who are taking in like the, the, like the, the subject matter, the impact, like they're able to identify it in a real way. Um, the other part of your question is I, there is a huge problem that's not talked about enough because of the insidious nature of having collectors who sit on every Native Arts Museum's board who are making, if this were any other industry, this would be insider trading. They're the ones who make decisions about their own collections, their friends' collections, who get to choose what gets on display and what doesn't. And that is why we are seeing the same things. That's why we're seeing and have, you know, problematic um conversations that don't happen when we're talking about the unethically acquired material that a lot of these collectors have because we know that these things they may not be required by NAGPRA to be repatriated but they are sacred they are significant everything we do as indigenous people is we believe that breath is breathed into things. So we're not just creating a rug or a blanket or a hair comb. It's something that is meant to serve its purpose and give significance. And so it's that is something that's not being portrayed and it's still something that is not being um, addressed like in the Native arts field as a whole. And it's something that mm -hmm. I think... Uh, we're going to have to reckon like with like in the in the next few years mm -hmm. i think uh, jacqueline I, all of your points yes absolutely um and i think another huge issue around that is that native art exhibits seem to be put in natural history museums over and over again they're not put in places like the met and in um major main quote mainstream museums 
and that's a huge issue. Um, and they're not included in places like Art Basel or prestigious art collecting for, quote, mainstream contemporary art. And I remember back when I was a student and visiting New York, I saw this incredible native jewelry exhibit that was so powerful and it was really well done. And it was at the Natural History Museum. And I was thinking, why is this here <laughs> in this museum? Like, I was with a group of That's friends. That's two of their strengths, rocks and Indians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, I was with a group of friends, and I, I opted to go. We didn't have much time before the museum closed because we were always late. And I opted <laughs> I opted to go see this exhibit, and then they all went to go see the butterfly exhibit. And it just, like, what the F? <laughs> so that was... That was another um, really big aha moment for me. And then we see that over and over again, or Native artists get pigeonholed into smaller museums that exhibit Native art, but are not, we're not able to break out of that. We're always attached to these stereotypes when there are non-Native board members, non-Native museum directors, and non-Native curators. Yeah, and I think that the problem is that you know, both, um, you know, Native curators, um, but Native artists, too, are constantly trying to meet um, expectations that people have of what Native art should look like, what a Native show should be, mm-hmm. what kinds of conversations we should be having, um, you know, and so, and I think this, you know, this ties to to the the thing, uh, Matika, you mentioned about the Edward Curtis show, is that it's always like in reference to these colonial um, structures that we're always having to like either argue with them, disprove them, you know, grapple with them. But the thing that I've been thinking about lately, um, and there, you know, now that there are more, you know, indigenous curators and indigenous women curators in the field, we're starting to think more about indigenizing rather than decolonizing Mm. and so with decolonizing which is super helpful it's you know linda tui smith's work i think has been something that has been central to um my work but probably all of our academic work um and uh amy lone tree's work decolonizing museums opened up really important conversations but it's still kind of this de colonizing you're still like centering you know colonizing um, within those conversations so for me you know my curatorial practice I'm thinking about well what does indigenizing a museum space look like and how is that different from decolonizing and for me that's you know I will likely never have a show that I don't have a co-curator on um I always have, you know, a curatorial fellow or an intern who's working as my co-curator. Um, their name is included on the project. Their name mm. um, is listed in a publication, um, you know, because they're helping do the work too. Um, you know, that they're, um, you know, when I write labels, um, I invite other people to participate in those conversations. Um, you know, when I write a label, I 
I usually ask questions or think about possibilities. This, you know, I think there's an expectation people have about going into museum and like being told what to think. Mm. uh, And that's not actually very useful. And so, you know, how do we, um, I have a show um, up now at the Hood Museum here at Dartmouth that um, open to the public the same day we close to the public. So <laughs> I've been jokingly calling it the show no one's ever going to see. Um, but it's called <laughs> it's called Form in Relation Contemporary Native Ceramics. And, um, you know, one of the the questions I pose, I pose a series of questions in the introductory panel. And it's like, how do we acknowledge our shared humanity how do we think about our relationship to place um, in terms of relationality, not in terms of extraction or ownership? Um, and then I ask questions in the labels because I'm not trying to tell people what to think. Um, you know, especially like New England audiences don't want me to tell them what to think. They want to, you know, they know what they want to think. And, you know, so it's like the this constant battle of like okay here's what people need to know but how do you like meet them where they're at and Mm. um you know facilitate a dialogue and a conversation that helps people get there on their own is the is like a challenge that i enjoy about museum work jamie just hearing you talk like that is the power of having an indigenous person in that role like you're thinking about building relationships with younger generations so they can also take on these roles and like be in these spaces you're thinking about the relationship to place and how to frame questions like those are things that don't necessarily happen with a non-native curator so Mm -hmm. i think that is really powerful and i love jacqueline how you talked about the like switch from we to i uh, or from like they to like we and i and the power of that too And the last thing, Jamie, that you were talking about in terms of audience is something that I'm really curious to hear from all of you in terms of the curatorial work in a museum has to serve so many different audiences in terms of like there's going to be the non-native folks who are walking in who think that they're going to be walking into like a mannequin like museum uh, exhibit of Indians or whatever who know nothing and then there's native folks who like want to see themselves reflected want to learn about other communities whatever it is Um, but at the same time the values and practices of a museum are completely created by like a white western model the idea that like the art has to be in certain ways on the walls the idea that there has to be labels the idea that you're supposed to be all quiet and like reverent as you like move through the space all of these things so i would love to hear from you guys about how you think of who you're curating for and how you kind of navigate those tensions between wanting to speak to multiple audiences in that space. Mm-hmm. I was actually just um, talking about this with Mercedes Durame, who's a Tongva photographer and installation artist. And um, we were talking last weekend actually about this exact question. And um, it it's super complicated um, and it can be very tricky because there is so much knowledge that the general public does not have about Native people in general. And so your work has to be to, um, on one hand, just teach that this artist 
is part of a tribal community that exists in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Mercedes said, like, I'd love to be able to tell someone that I'm Tongva and not get a blank stare back in return. Because um, that that's step one. And as an artist who's exhibited my work and marketed my own work, um, no one that I encountered knew who my tribe was either. And um, so there there's a lot of basic knowledge that needs to be addressed and um, a lot of truth-telling about history that is important to address. But then on the other hand, we were talking about, well, what? how can curation and how can these projects actually um, benefit the artist and benefit the community? Um, because she, Mercedes told me, um, like, I, f- I feel accountable towards my own community when I'm presenting my work because there's so little representation in the public sphere um, and people's minds. And so it's um, an interesting tension to have. Um, and it's something that I don't have the answer to, <laughs> but I think it's um, a question that you have to keep asking yourself as you plan exhibitions. Yeah. I mean, I think there's such an opportunity where it could be a place where you like really unsettle the settler visitors, you know, where they're suddenly thrust into an environment where they feel out of place and a little bit unsure of things, Um, like how a lot of Native people feel walking through like a traditional kind of white Western uh, museum. But there's all the challenges of like wanting to also you know, not alienate people, like bring people in, that kind of stuff. I think it's just really an interesting thing to me. Yeah, well, uh, well, I was going to say what prompted this conversation and this question was I was telling Adrian of how uh, it's really interesting to see and for me to see how my work exists in these places. So one time I was I was having a show at this national museum and I brought a bunch of my students and we were, they were looking at the pictures on the walls and we were laughing and making jokes and you know it was like 20 kids from the res it was loud <laughs> we were having a lot of fun <laughs> and the docent um, kept saying I'm sorry could could you guys please be more quiet and um, at one point somebody in the museum came over to me and said you know I would really appreciate it if you guys could just you know like be less disruptive and I said I, I would normally say yes, but since, you know, like this is my exhibition and I'm Matika, this is my show, I feel like I'm allowed to be as loud as I want. And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but, but you know, that, like that, <laughs> these sort of things happen, you know, <laughs> like where I, you know, I feel like um, in the times that I've brought groups of students to these places, they felt, you could tell that they were active, like very um, uncomfortable and they knew that the space wasn't for them. And um, how do we change? How do we shift that? You know, how do we change that? And I know, like in Tulalip, where I'm from, we've created our own museum, and there's a lot of community things that happen there. Like there's a, there was a longhouse that was built, and you can go there several times a week, and you can learn to bead, or you can learn to, 
you know, like Weave Cedar or there's there's lectures that it's and it's all for community. And it's amazing how different it feels in that space versus going to some other spaces, you know. And so I just I really wonder, like when you're curating these exhibitions and you finally get to this place where you can curate a contemporary Native art exhibition, what is it like when Native audiences interact with the space? Yeah, I think one of the, you know, you definitely got that right that like these spaces weren't built for us right like when museums um were brought into existence here and were being built like they were being built with our things in them because we were no longer going to exist um and so they would have a record you know of indigenous people and so um we certainly aren't supposed to be in these places as visitors certainly not you know as curators or you know hopefully one day directors um and i think that tribal museums i spent a lot of time at the osage nation museum growing up my aunt was the director of the osage nation museum um and it was like a space where people go in and visit and drink coffee and like you know when black panther came out all of my curator friends were like did you see she had coffee in the gallery and i was like (laughs) that's what you're tell like that's what you got out of black panther cool story that scene that scene you missed the point yeah yeah Yeah. so um you know not only did they miss the point um but you know it also brings up this thing that like i we like to eat we like to feed people we like to visit and museums never have like you can't have food and understand why you can't have food um but there's also never anywhere to sit you know, because it's like they don't want you to stay. They don't want you to spend time. And, you know, I think that's because we, you know, in Western institutions, art objects are art. They're objects. You should look at them. Um, whereas within a lot of communities, you know, the work that's in these places are relatives. They're beings. Like, we should spend time and visit with them. We should be able to leave offerings for them. And, you know, that's not something that is comfortable for you know people who work in museums um i was you know recently having a conversation with a large um institution um and the museum director came on and you know we were as an advisory board we're saying like oh well you know these are things you should consider and the director said well we just we don't want to make our public feel uncomfortable and I um, I said, well, uh, what part of your public? Because there are, you know, like BIPOC folks who have always been uncomfortable in these spaces. Um, so maybe, you know, um, white folks should join us and feel discomfort because it can actually be really productive, um, you know, because look at all of the things that have come from limitations. Um, You know, look at the beauty that has been created, even in times of extreme, um, you know, limitation and um, warfare, even and genocide that like Native people have still created beautiful things and continued traditions and maintained ceremony um, that like, that's really productive. And for a lot of folks, they're for the first time ever experiencing discomfort experiencing discomfort or feeling threatened by the government uh and it's like uh yeah some <laughs> people have lived their whole lives feeling that way um 
you know Word. so come join us come sit with us in this uncomfortable place I just want to um, acknowledge what you just said about um, snacks. <laughs> First of all, about snacks, you know, like <laughs> I always, I, always but, get I get it. But can we talk about snacks? I always get in trouble about <laughs> snacks in museums. Like I just like I'm always it's always a thing. But um, I like I feel more comfortable when I have snacks with me. You know, <laughs> like, but um, no about artifacts and uh, or or things being alive. You know, like um, like when we carve a mask, uh, which I've only done once. But um, my teacher told me that as you're as you're you know carving into this this cedar tree, you remember that it comes from the tree people, and as we transform it, we're giving it a new spirit, and as that spirit comes alive, we feed it, and you have to remember that this doesn't this is not a spirit that wants to be put on the wall. This spirit wants to be put on and danced and presented to the people, and you have to feed the spirit of this mask. You know, you need to sage it off and burn cedar for this mask, and. And you have to reintroduce him when you bring him out to the people, you know, and like, and that that's your responsibility as you since you've given this life, you know, and, and so when I put up a new exhibition in a new space, I like to go and like smudge it off, you know, <laughs> and feed the and like feed the spirit of the exhibition. And I can't tell you how many times like curators have been like, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't burn anything in here. You're going to set off the smoke alarms. It's, you know, it's a whole thing. It's, and I, I, it's, it's remained a whole thing, you know, like it's <laughs> difficult to be able to do that sort of like, sometimes I've like had to pretend like I was lighting the smudge and then just sort of like waft it with no smoke. You know? <laughs> but you know, that there's, um, there's this relationship that we're supposed to have as caretakers of these, of these things. And, um, and sometimes I'm, it's strange to not be able to do that. I don't. I don't. I've, I'm really reminded of that when you, of that story that I was told, you know, a long time ago by actually George David told me that story. So yeah. So I think that I'm at this place where my attitude is very like I don't owe you anything, um, and just being very unapologetically Diné or Indigenous, depending on the space and like what I'm brought to consult on or what um, I'm invited like to um, be yeah a thought partner in and on um, and that was a that was part of the reason for like stepping away from museums for myself was just really to choose myself um, 
because I had, uh, there was a lot of cost, like personal cost, um, that, that I had to like endure during my time. And so I, I think that this point I'm interested in institutions backing, um, black indigenous POC curators, museum educators, like who are talking about this, um, imagining of like what this new world is going to look like and how we can shape it. Um, it's going to require white curators and white museum professionals to step out of the way to like relinquish like the power that they've been holding for decades. Um, and I think that that is going to be a truly transformational um, just phase like of museums going forward. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the future because there are small steps that are, are moving that and I think that over the course of this transition and like how far things have have um, continued to improve um, it's become more and more apparent that there um, there is an opportunity for just re imagining what the relevance of museums are especially now like in a like what like whenever the post-pandemic like whenever we get to like like pp like post-pandemic like i'm really interested in like how museums are shaping i posted an article on facebook the other day um and like there have been a lot of like for every field there's a lot of like mutual aid efforts that are happening and there are national institutions that are trying to raise mutual aid for their furloughed um like colleagues for people who've lost their jobs and been terminated during this time and like the amount of money that most institutions are raising is like only a quarter of the percentage of what the actual amount of money that the institution itself is raising for their own funds to keep lights on, to keep all this and that. And it's really disgusting. Like that is like one of the power dynamics that exists like within museums. And so I'm really interested about looking forward in terms of just how we move towards um it's this merging of like indigenous and decolonized liberatory like lens of like museums that is much more of what Jamie described of this like community center. Um, but I think that's a conversation that museum, the museum field as a whole has been trying to like understand of like what is their place as a third and like fourth place like in our society and like what mm -hmm. does that look like and mean? And, and now because of this pandemic um, and like this like reckoning with race, like what does that look like you know is it like it's not even a fifth place it's like this other like Wakanda right that we're trying to create <laughs> what are some like promising practices or exhibits that you think have been done really well or Jamie like what are some things that you're trying to bring into your job in new ways or Kristen what kind of work do you hope to do moving forward so what good work is happening or could be happening um, in these spaces I, I've been fortunate to, I guess, freelance curate um, and not be beholden to a specific institution so far. Because of that, the projects I've worked on have felt really liberating and empowering. One of those projects was um, with Jacqueline, and we co-curated Matriarchs, and Matika was featured in it. 
We really had full creative power over that project and the museum offered its space to us and the staff supported the work that had to get done. And um, I think we achieved something in the future direction that we want to go in. And when we were curating that show, um, we... It was a collective curation effort between Jacqueline and myself, but also between ourselves and the artists that were in the exhibit. And there was a lot of um, consultation and discussion with the artists about which pieces they wanted to contribute. We gave them the general concepts that we were hoping to discuss through the artwork. And then um, it was a collaborative curation. That's how I viewed that process. I also wanted to give the artists um, approval over what we were writing about them and what information we presented about them. And I think um, things as simple as running that text by them if they want to review it and approve of it, something that I had never received as an artist in participating in exhibits before. And then I get to the exhibit and there'd be an edit that would need to be made, but the label was already printed. (laughs) The other curation project I've been involved with is a completely Chickasaw artist run project called Visual Voices. And it's currently traveling. Um, It's an exhibition of 15 Chickasaw artists. And there are five of us who are board members who are all Chickasaw artists who have the final say and we structured it to have power over creative decisions and content decisions and um, we wanted to be impartial. So we brought in outside two outside co-curators as well and a project manager to manage such a big undertaking. But For many people, we knew that this would be their first introduction to our tribe. And so we were able to tell that story in our own words. It um, had a few successful openings at the Mississippi Museum of Art and Mokna in Santa Fe and the Fred Jones. But also going back, we we did shop it around to lots of other Um, larger museums and we had hoped to get into more quote mainstream museums that don't typically exhibit native art and so I think there's still that question how do we um, how do we create something that empowers our own artists and how do artists benefit from these exhibits something I'm always interested in that brings up a really great transition to something I wanted to talk about, which is money uh, and like paying artists. Uh, you know, I now have this position and I'm at an institution that has really incredible resources. And one of the things that I was told when I came to Dartmouth was um, if it's for students, the answer is almost always yes. And so like my director calls me the crazy cat lady of interns because I always have like four or five interns and my colleagues have one. But I'm like, if a native kid wants to work in 
a museum or in the cultural field um, or is a studio artist and wants to like experience what museums are like so they have a you know kind of inside understanding of these spaces and I have the resources to do it why wouldn't I but also um, you know like the show that I just uh, opened uh, for in relation um, I made a commitment there are six artists in the show and I made a commitment to acquire a work by each of the artists, a significant work for the exhibition and not just borrow works. Um, and I had site specific commissions. I also talked to some of the artists and said, you know what, I have space and I have resources. Is there something that you have been wanting to create but haven't had, you know, the the support to create? How can I facilitate that? Um, but I think it's, and whenever I talk to folks, um, too, they're like, well, you know, what should we be doing? And I'm like, you should be paying artists, you should be acquiring artists, not just inviting them to give a talk, or asking to borrow their work that you need to make a commitment to them, um, you know, that helps support this work. And that's sustainable, too. I think sustainability is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, and I think it's, like everything we have these complicated like li our lives are very complicated right now um but we have um this moment where like i would normally be i'm calling in from the library at dartmouth but i would normally be calling in from home and my kids would probably interrupt um or you know you would see like that my house is not always the cleanest or, you know, that like, I'm not just a curator, but I'm a mom, I'm a partner. Um, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a granddaughter, I'm an auntie, uh, and a teacher, and a mentor. And like, I take all of these roles really seriously. And I'm one person, I shouldn't have to compartmentalize all of this. Um, and so I think our current moment has kind of opened up a space for us to be humans um, and to exist as humans um, in our professional roles in academia and in museums that might, you know, have some some positive impact, uh, you know, after this, you know, we move beyond this really difficult moment that we're sharing. Yeah, I love that. Thinking of like the like we're always in webs of relation and you can't take that away from a work in a museum that all of those pieces come from communities that are in webs of relation. All of those artists are in webs of relation. I'm invited to shows weekly where um, that they don't want to pay me. They don't want to pay me to speak. They don't want to, or, or they don't want to acquire the art. They want to pay me to speak about the art, you know? And, and so those are two big things that I really have like take issue with institutions and, I keep telling them like there's no amount of exposure that's going to pay my mor my mortgage, you know. <laughs> so thank you for the for the exposure, but it, it's not going to help. It's not going to help me be a stable person. And I can't make art if I'm not a stable person. So please stop asking me to to give you things for free. And um, I've had to become really um, 
I've I've tried to become very like serious about that. Well, and it's hard too because sometimes it's your friends. So like I have a buffer now, you know, like I don't ever like I just I don't even receive the email until after my assistant has vetted it and said that they're going to pay your normal fee. And usually if they won't pay my normal fee, I never even see the email, you know. So it's like that's where I'm at now, but it took, you know, it it took a really long time to get there and for years I did favors for institutions who, you know, it 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 was really painful, I think, looking back on it. And so I, I won't, I don't try really hard not to do that anymore. But that's also a position of privilege, you know, because it's really hard to get into these institutions. It's not an easy thing to be shown in national museums. It's not, and so there's that too. Um, I have to say one more thing about money. Um, I think there's an interesting thing that happens um, when we have to also recognize that while there are most institutions that don't pay artists like or for their work in terms of like buying purchasing it for their collection what tends to happen a lot is collectors then sometimes donate but then also museums purchase collections from collectors of work so we're thinking about the distribution like of funds and like money Oftentimes it goes back into the hands of collectors and not the hands of native artists. So like there's also this other when we're talking about equity and like who gets paid, that's another layer in terms of like who takes money out of the hands of native artists. Um, and then also I think that very few collectors actually understand the value of native art. So whether we're talking about traditional like art, even contemporary art, that there's a lived experience that is part of the making of the art that is not being compensated for or um, is always called into question when a particular price is put on a piece and that is not the worth of it. Like that is what's said, like that's not the value of like what that piece is. But it's if you're a non-Indigenous person, who are you to say what the value of a piece is when it when a price also considers like an entire like culture like transference of knowledge and like legacy that like happens so i think that that's also something that when we're talking about disconnect of like values and lack of equity <laughs> um that's something to like consider too um switching gears to like the best practices i think one of the um examples of a best practice that I was really just excited to see was the Hearts of Our People um, Native Women Artists um, exhibition that was just like a monumental contemporary exhibition that was curated by Terry Greaves, an Indigenous artist, um, and the way that that was installed with care um, kind of coincided with like what Jamie was talking about. Like there were um, places for people to give offerings to like different um, artworks in that show that it was acknowledging this lived spirit of the pieces that were um, part of that exhibition which um, it first showed at the uh, Minneapolis Institute of Art that was the organizing institution and they I have a lot of respect for their team in terms of the way they're looking at equity as a whole and other work that they're doing. So that's, a, I think, a great example of best practice. Um, that particular formation of like offerings for that space was unique to like homeland communities of that area because of the relationships that were built by the Minneapolis Institute of Arts like with their homeland communities um, as partners. Um, and 
I happened to know that because I was doing docent training for the second institution um, and they were navigating just conversations about, well, what does their practice look like that could mirror that but not copy it? Because MIA was very much like, this is something we came up with for this installation and this community and this space. Um, so I think that's something that's um, also important is recognizing that something that fits for one community may, may not and likely won't fit for another community. Um, I actually wanted to wrap up <laughs> it, um, it, by asking you guys to talk uh, a little bit as mothers, you know, um, you guys are all moms. I'm a new mom. You, you, Kristen and Jacqueline just had a baby. Jamie, I understand you're a mama too. And I'm, if you could think about it from that perspective of how you hope to shape the future of, of the museum world, of the art world, of access to the art world for your little ones and for the next generation. Well, Bryn was born into an exhibit <laughs> um, for matriarchs. Jacqueline and myself were both pregnant when we were planning that exhibit. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to give birth in the exhibit, but <laughs> I gave birth to her two months before the opening of the exhibit. So Anytime I was talking to an artist or doing a meeting on Zoom or something, I was probably breastfeeding and <laughs> I was doing interviews while breastfeeding her in the exhibit and just um, and facilitating public events there while breastfeeding. <laughs> There's see a trend there. When I brought her to the exhibit, she it was really special um, because I could even when she was a tiny baby, she loved, loved Jamie Okuma's cradleboard piece. <laughs> and um, there are certain pieces that she would just stare at. And it was really interesting to watch her visual preferences take shape um, from such an early age when she was just months old. And um, to be in the presence of these powerful works from indigenous femmes, I think, um, was a really great start for her, in my opinion. <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. Um, but yeah, I want her to be able to walk into a space when she's older and to feel empowered and to be comfortable to be herself and to, um, to be able to see our community in that space and to feel welcomed. Yeah, I, um, I have two boys, Grayson and Callum. They're eight and four. And um, I got pregnant my first year of my PhD program with Grayson and was terrified that I was like, oh, of course, like the, I'm like the indigenous woman, like getting pregnant and I'm not going to finish school. And like, you know, but I had people supporting me. Um, I had a cousin who came out and lived with me to help take care of Grayson when he was little. Um, I would go to class with like to my grad seminars with Grayson and nurse him when I needed to or, um, 
this past weekend, um, one of my mentors, uh, Jenny Tone Pahot, um, who was just absolutely incredible, passed. Um, and I would sit in her office and nurse while we talked about art. And so, like, the... My kids have grown up in these spaces and they feel comfortable. Um, I was pregnant with Callum and in the Field Museum doing work on their collections, um, on Osage collections there, did a lot of smudging, um, you know, with him. But um, they're fascinated by museums. Um, and I think museums are great places. We have great memories in museums and I want everyone, like all kids to be able to have that. I want them, you know, but that's because I get to go to museums for free because I work at a museum or, um, you know, like museums need to be accessible. They need to be open. They need to be welcoming. Um, and we have a lot of work to do in order to facilitate that. And we also need to, um, you know, I know how to advocate for myself now. And I know, you know, um, I hope to teach my kids how to advocate for themselves in a respectful way, you know, but um, that, you know, a lot of people are intimidated by these spaces. Um, and so how do we, how do we make them places where people feel comfort? Um, you know, like we should be challenged, um, and feel grief or joy or, you know, other things, but like we shouldn't ever feel shame or violated. Um, and so that's really what I, what I hope um, to do. Um, my son, um, Abram, he was, um, with me as I was working um, back and forth. I was commuting between here and San Diego um, to work with the Museum of Man. And um, it was an incredible, um, incredibly hard journey because I had worked in museums that really didn't have a lot of um, ancestral remains that had a lot of like just working like the Museum of Man has been actively for the past few years like really um, repairing relationships with um, different communities um, but it, they were still in process so I was very acutely aware of carrying my son and and be not and and just like hearing my grandma's voice of like knowing I really wasn't supposed to be there um, and yet at the same time, remembering just when I told her when I was younger that I was going into museums and the protection prayer that um, we had for me and like my career to be able to like have protection in these spaces. Um, and I think about that um, a lot and in that place of really trying to help um, museums become more um, is really like the the service and the way I've been um, like working within like my business now having moved out from like being on staff at museums um, and within that like I want my son to feel welcomed when he's in spaces um, 
and just thinking about what his uncles have endured, like coming to like my shows and exhibitions and like have literally not been allowed in because of the way that they were dressed and the way that they were, um, and, and they weren't even dressed in like, it, it doesn't even matter. Like they, they were my guests and were turned away. Um, and so I want my son to feel welcome, like in these spaces, like moving forward. His dad is a very talented artist. We have traveled as a family, like all across the country as I've given trainings and different lectures, um, at different institutions, um, across the States. And, and so he already has been exposed like to museums, has played in interactive galleries, um, has put things together even as like a baby. Um, and, and I want him to continue to find, um, the beauty in art, the beauty in culture and, um, in learning about other people's culture, like through art, um, and through museums. And so, um, I, I, there's, a lot of that vision that like I can help cultivate, but then there's a lot um, that I carry, like raising an indigenous boy um, and him becoming um, an indigenous man and just being carrying hope, um, but maybe a little bit of fear about like that what I'm doing is enough to create the world where him and other other black indigenous um like people of color like feel welcomed and safe in in museums and just our society as a whole <clears throat> thank you all so so much um yeah i'm just in awe of all of you and feel so honored to know you and like have seen the growth of your careers and lives and the birth of these beautiful babies and all of these things it's just so it gives me a lot of hope. Like as someone who has had bad experiences in museums, uh, it gives me so much hope to think about this powerful work being done. And I'm just so full of gratitude for the work that you have done and will do and in all spaces around art and museums as well. So I'm just so grateful for all of you. Yes, I'm grateful for you and um, Matika and bringing us together and being on this podcast and having this podcast in the first place, I yeah. think is just so powerful. It's such an important space too. And I think it really kind of demonstrates that like we need to combat these things from all different angles and use different strategies and that there's space for all of our voices because they're different too. And, you know, um, that like, that you're, you know, uplifting people in these conversations. Thank yeah. you. I also just got to thank museums because that's how we met. Like, that's how, right. Like, literally, <laughs> literally, like where, how we met and like that in itself is just so, um, remarkable. So yeah. Yeah. Tiguitin friends for tuning in to this special three-part series, Indigenous Artist to Artist, inspired by our friend Grace Bonnie at Design Sponge. Big thank you, Grace. And to our friends in this series, 
Wadi Crazy Horse, Pat Pruitt, Jane Nicole Hatfield, Yataka Fields, Brian Redcorn, Holly Nordman, and from this episode, Jacqueline Russell, Kristen Dorsey, and Jamie Powell. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. As always, we realize that this is just a small selection of artist friends, and over here at All My Relations, we remain committed to continuing to illuminate the work of Indigenous artists. In the meantime, we'll link to more Indigenous artists to follow, support, and build relations with in the description and on the gram. (laughs) We invite you to tag other Native artists that really inspire you. Please stay tuned for our next series on Mauna Kea as we talk story with our Hawaiian relatives about the resistance and uprising and how we can be good relatives to them right now. This podcast takes a lot of people to put it together. First, thank you, Teo, for the sound, recording, editing, video editing, music, and mastering. Same goes to Max Levin for the late night scoring and piano magic. Thank you to Sierra Sana for our episode art, Kristen Bolin and Will Paisley for back of housework, and thank you to all of you for tuning in. And please consider supporting our podcast as we are listener supported. We have a Patreon and a direct link to donate at our website, allmyrelationspodcast.com. Or if donating isn't possible right now, just giving us a subscribe and sharing this episode on your socials is super helpful. Until next time, we send our love and good energy out to you wherever you are. Blessings, solidarity, aho. All my relations.